Would you please turn with me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are joining us here today as well. Now, as Pastor Brian mentioned, what we've been doing is this thing called the story. And just let me uh, emphasize, along with Pastor Brian, how if you're a guest today, get a hold of that gift bag out of the guest tables out in the lobby, turn in this coupon at the uh, Resource Center, and we'd love to give you a free copy of what's called The Story. It's kind of a Bible reading program, okay? And uh, it's really been helpful to so many people to connect with the Bible when they haven't uh, connected with the Bible before. And so really encourage you to get a hold of this. And then we'd love to have you come back next Sunday, because this is like the perfect time you're jumping in on this, because we're just starting the story of Jesus. So the story of the life of Jesus, I will start teaching on that next Sunday. And basically, July is the life of of Jesus. Then August 3rd, we just did Christmas in June a couple of weeks ago. We're going to do Easter in August on August 3rd. So we're going to celebrate Easter on August 3rd. So basically the month of July is going to be the life of Jesus. Then we pivot with the resurrection of Jesus leading to the early church in August. And then August will be the early church. And if you've ever just wanted to know what more of what the Bible says about the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the early church, the history of the early church, this is like a perfect summer project for you. And just encourage you to be here every week, read a chapter of this every week, and I believe that God will really use it uh, within your life. Now, uh, what we're going to do this morning, because we had the patriotic musical earlier, and because we um, are leading up to 4th of July on Friday, I'm going to do one of my historical biblical sermons. And I know for some of you, I always ask this question, but how many of you uh, don't like history when you were in school. Let me see your hands. Okay. Oh, you're not at this service. That's a, you know, you've avoided this. So that's why you're not here. But at any rate, if you don't care for history, bear with me. This is just uh, one week. Okay. How many of you like history? How many of you? Okay. And you guys made it a point to be here, I'm sure, because you knew I was doing one of these messages. And this one's for you, okay, where we take a, a figure of history. We kind of look at some things that happen in his life. I think we can learn so much through biographies. You can learn by watching the life of another person, and particularly a follower of Christ, biblical principles lived out within his or her life, like we did with Jackie Robinson a couple of weeks ago. That's what we're going to do today with George Washington. And now he was our founding father, and it's always difficult to separate the man from the legend, to see the real guy behind kind of the legend of George Washington. Once there was a little boy who lived in the country. They had to use an outhouse for a facility, and the little boy absolutely hated the outhouse because it was always hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and it stunk all the time. So the little boy decided that because the outhouse was on the bank by a creek, he would push the outhouse into the water. After a spring rain, when the creek was fully swollen, the boy knew it was time to push the outhouse into the creek. He got a big stick, and he pushed and the outhouse toppled into the creek and floated away. Later that night, his dad told him that they were going to make a trip out to the woodshed. The little boy knew that meant a spanking. He asked his father why, and the father said, because someone pushed the outhouse into the creek today, and I think it was you, wasn't it, son? The boy answered, yes, it was, dad. Then the little boy thought and said, today, dad, I read in school that when George Washington cut down the cherry tree, he didn't get into trouble because he told the truth. The father responded, well, yes, son, but George Washington's father wasn't in that cherry tree. And he cut it down. 
So that's one of the legends of uh, George Washington, cutting down the cherry tree. As a matter of fact, tonight after um, the Hub, uh, Purpose Church, we always have our, our meal together. We're going to have cherry pie tonight. But the menu, get this, and this is really weird, is tacos and cherry pie. Now, I love tacos and I love cherry pie, but I, how many of you have ever eaten the two of them at the same time? Well, tonight's your night. Come back and bring a friend with you and try out what it's like to eat tacos and cherry pie the same way. Now, it's hard to think of George Washington as a real person because after all, I mean, he's just like of legendary status. There's a state named after him. Does anybody want to guess what, what, what state that was? It was Washington. Uh, there's the nation's capital is named after him. Anybody want to guess what that is? There's a monument named after him, the Washington Monument. We celebrate his birthday uh, in, in, in February. It's a national holiday. Most of all, and most importantly, he's on the $1 bill, right? I mean, we know he's the guy on the $1 bill. And that kind of iconic picture of him, that's the big one I have there in your study outline. And I think in some ways it's kind of unfortunate because this picture on the dollar bill, which is the traditional picture of Washington, he kind of looks like this elderly, old geezer kind of guy. He's always got this sour expression on his face. He always looks like he's got chronic uh, uh, dental discomfort, you know, because of his wooden teeth. And he just looks like he's just kind of a sour guy, sour expression, not very happy, not very dynamic. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, What if I were to tell you that George Washington was considered the manliest man of his generation? He was like a stud. He was kind of like, you know, Pete Wilson and I were working to figure this out the other day, what we're going to compare him to. And we were trying to come up with a person. And I thought of one finally this morning. He's kind of the Chuck Norris of, uh, of the 1700s. That's, uh, that's what he was. He was tall. He was powerful. He was fearless. He was graceful. He was a good dancer. Did you know that? George Washington was known as a good dancer. People would seek him out as a dance partner. If there had been Dancing with the Stars, he would have won Dancing with the Stars. And what better star to dance with than George Washington, you know? So the better way to think of him is not that sour expression on the dollar bill, but think of him as Captain America. That, that is kind of more what you ought to think of with George Washington. We got a t-shirt, actually, you can order online. It's called the Founding Fathers. Let's go to the next one. There they are, right there. Now, that's what you should think of when you think of of, of George Washington. Now, he was a man that, you know, had a lot of contradictions going on within his life, tremendous contradictions. He's called the father of the country, but he never had any children of his own. His father died when he was a young boy, never fathered any children of his own, and yet he's called the father of the country. He was a deeply honorable man, a man of integrity, but he did tell lies, okay? When you look at his early career, uh, when he was in the military, and he was a young officer. Oh my goodness, he would exaggerate the truth of military victories. He would cover up military mistakes by kind of exaggerating his report back to headquarters. The story of the cherry tree probably isn't true. He freed American colonists from the greatest military power at that time, the British Empire. And yet at the same time, he owned 300 slaves. Uh, he was a devout Christian, but he was also involved with the Masons, which was kind of a, kind of a sketchy, kind of a cultish kind of group uh, back then. And, and, and so he was kind of involved in that at the same time that he was a devout, passionate follower of Jesus. Here's maybe the, the biggest one of all. He was extremely ambitious. I mean, this is a guy that was just driven for fame, glory, land, money. But at a pivotal moment in American history, he turned down ultimate power not once, 
but twice. And because of this, his contemporaries called him an American Moses. His contemporaries believe that he was alone to America from God because he's like the one guy in history, the first guy in history to have that kind of power and to turn it down. And if you ever wonder if one person's actions can matter, if one person's act character can matter, if you, can, if you ever wonder, does your life matter? Do your actions matter? Does your character matter? All you got to do is look at George Washington. And yet, this is something we say here at Purpose Church all the time, PFP Purpose Church, is everybody's got a purpose every bit as important as George Washington's. You have a purpose. Your everyday actions, even the small actions, incredibly matter. Our character matters. And you can see that exemplified in the life of George Washington. Here's this verse that we had with Jackie Robinson as well. Esther 4, verse 14. It's true of every person in this room. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You live where you live. You go to school where you go to school. You work where you work. For this time in history, you have a calling every bit as much on your life as George Washington. Now, a little aside I want to take to kind of review what we've been doing in the story in the Old Testament. It's very interesting. What America did uh, around 1776 and around the late 1700s, what America did under the leadership of George Washington is the exact reversal of what Israel did. We studied this a few weeks ago in 1000 BC. That is, he chose to be a president rather than a king. As a matter of fact, they wanted to make him king. But he said, no, instead I want to be called Mr. President. It's funny, he could see some of the names that they came up that they wanted to call him. John Adams, who was the next president, he wanted to call George Washington his mightiness. That's what they wanted to call him. Which is interesting, because that's what Kimberly calls me around the house. She calls me <laughs> his, his mightiness, and, uh, and he was going to take that name. But he refused to have any of those titles, and said, no, no, no. I just simply want to be Mr. President. I'm part of the people as well. And this is the exact opposite of what we studied a few weeks ago in the story of what Israel did in 1000 BC. Basically, they had a president. They had a prophet at that time named Samuel. And God was their king, and Samuel was their prophet or their president. And, that, and, and yet they chose to have a king. And what America did under George Washington is, is flipped it, the exact opposite of what the tendency was in history, to say, no, 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 we're going to have a president, and God is going to be our king. Jesus is going to be our king. Let me, let me show you, this is, such, this is from 3,000 years ago, and it's such a great description of what you have when you have a king or a military dictatorship. You can see it around the world even today. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. For whatever reason, there's this human tendency to want a dictator. We want somebody to tell us what to do. We, we want a king. We want a dictator. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaken me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. You want a dictator? You want a king? Let me just tell you what this looks like. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. 
Some he'll assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he'll take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Does this sound like a military dictatorship? It's exactly what it's been through history. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. We want to be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord and the Lord answered. They want a king, listen to them and give them a king. Now, the remarkable thing, we take it for granted today because we've lived under a democracy our whole lives. We just take it for granted how counter-cultural uh, it was what America did under George Washington. America reversed the natural human tendency to want a human king. There's this fascinating quote. You'll see it there in your study outline. In 1774, a report to King George of England, the governor of Boston noted, if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none nor any governor but Jesus Christ. The pre-war colonial committees of correspondence soon made this the American motto, no king but King Jesus. When they started America, that was their motto, no king but King Jesus. We don't want King George, whether it's George Washington or King George of England. The only king we want is Jesus and we want a president like George Washington. And this sentiment was carried over into the 1783 peace treaty with Great Britain, ending that war which begins in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. Now, what would America look like today if George Washington, and we think, oh, it wasn't that. No, it was, it was going that way. He was going to be king. They wanted him to be king. He was asked to be king. And it's miraculous that he chose to be president rather than to be king. All right, let's dig in. He was born in Virginia, February 22nd, 1732. Now, if you want to play a party game here, write down every time I say the word Virginia, because uh, for those of you that are visiting, that's my home state. So how many Virginians does it take to screw in a light bulb? It takes 10, one to screw it in, and nine to note the historical significance thereof. So we love our history in Virginia. So just see how many times I'll mention the name Virginia. He was born in Virginia, the first son of Mary Ball Washington and a tobacco farmer named Augustine Washington. He had two older half-brothers, Augustine and Lawrence, from his father's first marriage. Now, his dad died when he was 11. And if you've ever felt like you wished you had gotten more education, you're in good company. George Washington regretted his whole life that because his dad died when he was 11 years old, he didn't have the money to get a proper education. And back then, they would send him to Europe for a formal education. He never had the chance to do that because his dad died when he was 11 years old. So if you've ever regretted and said, you know, can God still use me? Can I still fulfill my dreams even though I didn't get all the education I wished I could have? Well, you're in good company because George Washington felt that his entire life. He was raised by his older brother, Lawrence, who was 25 years old when his dad died. He was 11. His brother was 25. And his brother was like his hero. Now, if you look at his early life, you can see, like in our life, Romans 8, 28, 
And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and that are called according to his purpose. Even the stuff in your life that you think is bad, it's amazing how when you turn that over to God, God can work that for the good. Now, it might be a bad thing, but if you turn it over to him, he can work it for his good thing. Let me give you one example. In 1751, his big brother took him to the island of Barbados because Lawrence had tuberculosis and he thought getting in a more Caribbean uh, climate would kick, uh, knock out his tuberculosis. But instead, 19-year-old George Washington got smallpox when he was in Barbados. Now you say, how could that be a good thing? Well, he survived it. It didn't kill him. And that meant that he was inoculated against it his whole life. And so in the middle of the Revolutionary War, when many people were dying and sick with smallpox, he was inoculated against it. And so he was strong. He was able to keep his strength all during the American Revolutionary War. His mother wouldn't let him join the military. So instead, he became a surveyor, and he was driven to get land and wealth. He was very ambitious. By the age of 20, he owned 2,500 acres of frontier land in Virginia. So very, very ambitious. Then in 1752, tragedy struck. His big brother Lawrence died. Then Lawrence's wife and daughter both died. And so George inherited uh, Mount Vernon because of their deaths. And we'll put a picture up there. Uh, that's what it looked like uh, during his, his lifetime. Now we come to his military career. The French and Indian War broke out. And in Proverbs 24, verse 16, it says, for though the righteous falls seven times, they rise again. And this was so true in his life. It was true uh, because he had so many failures. We tend to think that these people in history is just one success after another. I mean, the best example of that is probably Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's amazing when you read these famous people. They are basically mess-ups until later on in their life. I mean, it's just so encouraging. You ever think, oh, I make so many mistakes, and oh, this mistake I made, and that's like this bad decision I make. One of the fascinating things, when you read somebody like George Washington, he made one bad military mistake. I mean, the American Revolution is just a series of defeats until finally they win in the end. And I think that's a good thing to encourage us in our lives. If you feel discouraged because of mistakes and bad decisions you've made, just understand that if you turn those over to God, he can still bring you out effective and successful in the end. The other thing I would say about Washington from that verse, for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. It was supernatural how God spared his life. There's this great quote I love by John Wesley. You are immortal until your work for God is done. You are bulletproof. Nobody can kill you until your work for God is done. And that's a good encouragement. You will fulfill your purpose. Nobody can take your life until you fulfill the purpose that God has given to you. And boy, you see that in George Washington's life. There's this one battle that historians talk about where he was just, and he was so courageous, he was always like in the middle of the gunfire. And there's this one battle where he had two horses shot out from underneath him. At the end of the battle, he had four holes in his coat where musket balls went through but didn't put a scratch on him, but they came so close that they were holes in his hat and in his clothes from these musket balls. There were 86 horseback officers in that battle. 85 of the 86 got shot down. The only one out of 86 that survived was George Washington. And because he was six foot three, he was a humongous uh, target. You could just see him. He's like, I mean, that's even bigger than it is today because people were shorter back then. So he was like this huge target. And the Indian tribes even said that they singled him out to kill. They said, that's the guy to kill. They were all shooting at him, and he made this big target 
But they said after the war, it was like there was this, this shield of protection around him. There was like this invisible force field around him. The Indians had a name for him. They called him the one favored of heaven who could not be killed in battle. That's what they referred to George Washington. And it's because we are immortal until our work for God is done. We, God will protect us until we fulfill that purpose that we have. Next page of your study outline. After the war, he marries uh, Martha Dandridge Custis. Uh, there she is, uh, his wife that he married. Uh, she was a, a wealthy Virginia widow, and he helped raise her two children from her first marriage, Patsy and Jackie. They never had children of their own, but he had stepchildren that he helped to raise. Then comes the American Revolution in 1775. At the age of 43, they asked George Washington to be the leader of the army. Now, why did they ask him? Well, John Adams used to joke about some of the reasons why uh, they asked him. They said he's tall, he's handsome, and he's graceful. But there were other reasons. First of all, he was rich at a young age. And that actually was helpful because back then, you were very vulnerable to bribes. They would be trying to bribe you left and right. Uh, for example, Benedict Arnold, that's, he was bribed. And so that's why he betrayed his friend, George Washington. Almost got George Washington captured or assassinated because of this betrayal. And it was all because he had financial troubles and he was vulnerable uh, to being bribed. So he was rich. He had this sterling reputation. Uh, he, there was this awe about them. They, they said that when he walked into the room, you just sensed that you were in the presence of a great leader. Uh, he was uh, unhappy about going into the American Revolution. He writes, unhappy it is, though, to reflect that a brother's sword has been sheathed in a brother's breast. He was not anxious to go to war. And that the once happy and peaceful plains of America are either to be drenched with blood or inhabited by slaves. Sad alternative, but can a virtuous man hesitate in his choice? He risked a great deal. Because if the American Revolution failed, they would hang him as the leader of it. He would be executed as a traitor. He also risked, like I said, he was like the Bill Gates of his time. He was very, very wealthy. He was an extremely wealthy man. And so he risked all of that by joining in the American Revolution. Uh, he writes, I do not think myself equal to the command. He, he was very humble. He thought, you know what? I don't know that I can do this. I am honored with. But as the Congress desire it, I will enter upon the momentous duty and give every power I possess in their service and for the support of the glorious cause. There were six years of fighting in the American Revolution from 1775 to 1781. Uh, we know some of the famous points of that. Here's a picture of the crossing the Delaware. Um, uh, this daring Christmas night, they surprised the enemy who had been drinking all day on Christmas Day. They had gotten drunk, they were hungover, and George Washington surprised them on Christmas night by crossing the Delaware. Uh, there's the famous surrender of Cornwallis at the end of the war. Basically, the only battle they won was the one at the end. They had very few victories, but they just persevered. They hung on there through their defeats and eventually were victorious. Biographer David Adler writes, His men followed him barefoot through the snow at Trenton. They wintered with him at Valley Forge without proper clothes, food, or firewood. Surely they fought not only for independence, but also for Washington. Now, what is it that carried him through these hard times? It was his faith in Jesus, his faith in God. Here's a picture of him being baptized. Uh, there you see him uh, being baptized. Here's another of the famous pictures of him kneeling in prayer uh, during uh, the war. And actually, he's the originator of the tea bow. Uh, this is, uh, see right there. there. See the, right there? 
You think Tim Tebow came up with that? No, 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 no. There's the uh, George Washington Tebow. And it's very interesting because he's doing it next to a horse and Tim Tebow's a Bronco. And I don't know, I thought, that was, I thought that was interesting. He was known for his morning and evening devotions. He would kneel with his Bible. We'll see this picture right here. And his men would often come in uh, to his tent to see him there. And there, um, I'm, I'm sorry, the next one with him kneeling uh, with his Bible. He'd be uh, kneeling next to his scriptures and when he would be kneeling next to a scripture, they'd come in and he would have his quiet time kneeling uh, next to his Bible, with his Bible open uh, there in his tent in the morning for his morning devotions and also for his afternoon uh, devotions as well. Um, he was uh, very committed to his church, very faithful in church attendance. He was, uh, oh, there's the picture of him. This is how he would do his devotions. He would kneel with his Bible open. He'd have his morning devotions in that way, and he'd have his evening devotions that way as well. Uh, he was a, a vestryman in his church for 22 years. That's the equivalent in the Anglican church of kind of like our deacons or our trustees. He was a church warden, which is kind of the equivalent of being the executive pastor uh, for his, his church. He was known for charity. He was always giving, especially the poor, very, very, and he would do it in secret. When back then it would politically be a good idea in order to give so other people could see it, he did it all in private, and he was just known for giving gobs of his money away, particularly to the poor and to people that were prisoners. He would make sure, like any of the leftovers at the White House when he was president, would be taken over to the prison. He truly believed with all of his heart that God had given him a purpose. He believed that God had a plan for his life. He believed that his purpose, his reason he was put on the planet was to take America through uh, this different, uh, difficult time. And he devoted all of his effort to discovering God's purpose for his life and fulfilling that purpose. Uh, here are some quotes about him because it guided the way he led the nation. He said, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. He writes, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of the mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. He believed, like Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. You know, you see his name mentioned a lot with the Iraq and the Afghanistan war and the upheavals in Syria and Egypt. You know what you'll read? I just read this in, in a magazine article just the other day. They're always asking the question, where is there George Washington? You know, sometimes we say, oh, you know, you know those countries you know, going through such a mess. And, and you know what? We were a mess. Um, we were a mess. And now I believe that our Christian faith was a great deal of what formed us at that time, the ability to forgive each other. I mean, that is huge in countries coming together. Just the ability not to have these like Hatfield and McCoy feuds that go on generation to generation. One of the key ways, important things for a nation to come together is just the ability with the power of Jesus to forgive each other. That's what holds us together. And you often see people saying, where is the George Washington for Iraq? Where is the George Washington for Afghanistan? That's what they need in order to survive 
and to come together as a nation. And that talks about his refusal to be crowned king. Uh, they offered him the crown, he refused it. There was this thing in 1783 called the Newburgh Conspiracy. Now, this is, sounds so much like today. The war ended and Congress was broke, okay? Didn't have any money. So they couldn't pay the soldiers for having fought in the war and they couldn't provide them pensions. Does that sound like today? Congress is broke and so they can't pay their bills uh, to the military. And so the soldiers were so angry that they wanted to take over the country with a military dictatorship with George Washington as their king. And, and um, he goes in and he gives the speech of his life when they all met together. They said he just gave this amazing speech about don't do this. Don't do this. We've come this far. Be patient with Congress. Eventually they'll come through uh, to, to, to pay you. But just hang in there and do not make me king. But they said the soldiers were still angry at him after this speech because they thought that he was not doing all that he could do to get his money for them from Congress. But here's the thing that broke the ice. At the end of his speech, they're still mad at him. But he's going to read this letter from a Virginia congressman who was basically saying, please hold on, we're going to get you this money eventually. And he begins to read it. And he, and he stumbles because he can't see it very well because it's somebody else's penmanship. And so he's stumbling through this letter. And finally he just stops and he goes into his waistcoat pocket and he pulls out some wired-rimmed spectacles. Now, they had never seen him in glasses before. He was 51 years old. He used them for private reading on, when he was on by himself, but he had never worn them in public. And he pulls out these spectacles and puts them on And then he says these words, gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in your service and now find myself growing blind. And it totally broke the ice when they saw their general that they loved so much in that kind of vulnerable position. The soldiers began to weep outwardly and he quietly walked out of the room and the conspiracy fell apart and they gave up making him king and they were willing to wait for the process to unfold. He resigns as general. We've got that picture up there. And we think, oh, no big deal. Everybody resigns. Everybody retires. No, this is the first time in human history that a general with that much power resigns and walks away from that power. It was so astounding that his arch enemy, King George of England, when he heard that Washington had done this, he said, this must be the greatest man in the world. It had never been done in human history to have this much power and then to resign it and to walk away. Uh, Joseph Ellis writes, Washington demonstrated that he was as immune to the seduction of dictatorial power as he was to smallpox. His trademark decision to surrender power as commander-in-chief and then later on as president was not a sign that he had conquered his ambitions but rather that he fully realized that all ambitions were inherently insatiable and unconquerable. He knew himself well enough to resist the illusion that he transcended the human nature. Unlike Julius Caesar and Oliver Cromwell before him, and Napoleon, Lenin, and Mao after him, he understood that the greater glory resided in posterity's judgment. If you aspire to live forever in the memory of future generations, you must demonstrate the ultimate self-confidence to leave the final judgment to them, and he did. He followed the example of his Savior, Jesus Christ. In your relationships with one another, Paul wrote, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Then his presidency, he did exactly the same thing. He only wanted to serve one term and then walk away. But Thomas Jefferson begged him to do a second term because he thought the nation was still too fragile. And so begrudgingly, he served a second term, but then he walked away from power a second time like he had done after the Revolutionary War. He's 64 years old. He's exhausted. And five months before he died, he makes one of the most important decisions in his life. You know, sometimes you think when you're in your later years, oh, you know what? Uh, My decisions just don't matter that much anymore. Five months before he died, he made one of the most important decisions of his life. He sat down he wrote, rewrote his will to free all of his slaves upon his death. Now, to us, it's like, well, duh, of course he should do that. That was totally countercultural at the time. Uh, Kimberly, you told me, Thomas Jefferson, I forgot to ask you this. Thomas Jefferson didn't do that, did he? That's why you're ticked off. At she went to Monticello, and she came back saying, I don't like Thomas Jefferson anymore. I said, why? He didn't free his slaves like Washington did. And so she's been ticked off at Thomas Jefferson ever since, you know. He rewrites his will freed his slaves, and he left enough money in his will for each of the younger slaves, after they got their freedom, to get educated, to learn how to read, write, be educated, and to be trained in a trade so they could supply, supply for their needs after for the rest of their lives. And for the older slaves, he left enough money for them basically to retire and for all their needs to be provided for uh, until they die. And it was a remarkable thing, and he does it five months before his death. And the reason he did it is because as a follower of Christ, he knew verses in the Bible like Galatians 8.28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He knew that one whole book of the Bible was devoted to a letter from Paul to a slave owner about freeing his slave. Did you know that one entire book of the Bible is written about freeing the slaves? And it was written to Philemon by Paul, urging him to free his slave, Onesimus. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. What Paul wrote was radical 2,000 years ago. What George Washington did was radical 200 years ago. Then comes his death five months later. December 12, 1799. You know what? The praise band can come back up right now. Uh, December 12, 1799. He's riding in the rain, looking over his uh, farmlands. For five hours, he rode in the rain at the age of 67. He comes in, and he's in wet clothes, and he should have changed his clothes, but the dinner guests were waiting, and he didn't want to keep them waiting for dinner, and so he goes in, and he has dinner in his wet clothes. He comes down sick that night. The medicine back then was horrible. You can't believe the, the dumb things they believed and did to President Washington or to George Washington. They bled him. You know, back then they believed that you drain, you, you leach the blood out of them, you drain blood from them to get the bad blood out. That's exactly uh, the wrong thing to do. They bled him four different times. They took a total of five pints out of him which is 40% of your blood they drained out of him. They took, um, they blistered his neck with these uh, hot poultices. And so they blistered his neck, they drained five 
pints of blood out of him, and they gave him laxatives. All of this would make him weaker and weaker. He could have been cured with simple antibiotics that you can go to get to your doctor anytime. That could have saved George Washington, but he died on December 14, 1799, with his wife and his children by his bedside. Not only uh, the, the bells in America and Alexandria, Virginia, the bells tolled day and night for four straight days and four straight nights. The bells tolled in Alexandria, Virginia upon the news. The flags in France were at half-mast in honor of George Washington. Even the British, who he had defeated, their arch enemy, over 60 British ships flew their ship, their masts at half-mast in honor of George Washington. He's an example, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like Jackie Robinson and David. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. President John Adams, his successor, writes, His example is now complete, and it will teach wisdom and virtue to magistrates, citizens, and men, not only in the present age, but in future generations, as long as our history shall be read. And that's the life of George Washington an example for us in fulfilling the purpose, whatever it might be, that God has called on us to fulfill.